Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Today's guest is pianist Vijay Iyer. His new CD is called Historicity, and uh, the interview that you're about to hear was recorded in a couple of places, in the lobby of Vijay's uh, apartment in New York City, and then in a garden outside his apartment. And uh, the, the former location is really not quiet at all. And uh, had I been even slightly more intelligent, I would have moved us right at the beginning. So you're going to have to suffer through a little bit of crowd noise at the beginning, but I urge you to do so because uh, Vijay is just an incredibly brilliant man and composer and musician, and you're going to want to hear everything he has to say. So uh, please don't mind the doormen and the people wandering in and out and the guys from Fresh Direct delivering food, and uh, stick with it because eventually we move out to the garden where it is significantly quieter. Vijay's got a new album, as I probably mentioned a few seconds ago but have already forgotten, called Historicity, and uh, it's on the ACT label. It's really fantastic. Uh, Stefan Crump and Marcus Gilmore on bass and drums with Vijay, and they do uh, this tune, among many others, called Galang. My guest is Vijay Iyer. He and his trio have a new album called Historicity, and uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. We, uh, well, I'll just mention, because it's going to be obvious to everyone who listens, that we're actually in the lobby of the building in which you live right now. So yes. uh, there's going to be some extraneous noise, but that's just part of the adventure, so we'll, that's right. <laughs> we'll deal with it. Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I think you've described historicity as meaning being placed in the stream of history, can you can you talk about a little more about what that means and why you you thought that concept was important uh, to highlight on this record? Well, you know, being uh, framed by historical forces—that's something that's a condition that we all share, being alive and being part of culture. And uh, I don't think I was trying to make any grand statement about it. Really, just acknowledge that fact, uh, that simple fact about our existence, you know. Um, it turns out that this album features more covers of past works than most of my other albums have. Um, that's sort of how the cards fell when we were putting it together. And, uh, and so it became clear in that process that um, the past is kind of shaping us in this interesting way. So I, I guess... Uh, Using, realizing that that became a theme for the album, which initially we came together making the album with no theme in mind or any kind of overarching concept other than just documenting the group, which has been together for years now, you know. I've worked with these guys, with Stefan, the bass player, for a decade, and with Marcus, the drummer, for six or seven years now, so... So it was really about the the possibilities of the group, you know, and no, no larger grandiose concept than that. But as it came together, I saw that there was this other thread to the narrative that was kind of uh, interesting to to just uh, highlight. So uh, while it's certainly the case that 
this album maybe more explicitly explores past works. I'm guessing it's not the case that it is any more informed by them than your previous work, right? Is that fair to say? Which is, yeah, I think, which is to say that all of my work in the past has been, uh, you know, built on by standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm deeply influenced by people like Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and, uh, Duke Ellington and Bud Powell and McCoy and Cecil and Randy Weston and so forth. And so, uh, I've learned so much from that history. I'm also deeply informed by my parents' history and their, the heritage that they, they give me, which is the, you know, the, fact of being um, of Indian heritage and that cultural strand which is really important to me too and then I grew up in you know 70s and 80s in America and that is also that really informs who I am too I mean I'm kind of part of the what could be called the hip-hop generation you know I'm part of that and that that informs me I grew up listening to pop music and I grew up playing classical music uh, on violin, I was a you know classical violinist. I played in orchestras and stuff, and so all this stuff is part of who I am too, you know. Uh, so and that's always been the case. And that you know, when you look back at my other twelve albums, uh, they all have aspects of all of that kind of um, embedded in the music, you know. One thing, uh, th- this album. Um, also uh, revisit some of your past work, like Trident, which, if I'm not mistaken, that was on Architecture, right? That- Trident was on Architectures, and it was also on Panoptic Modes. That's right. Okay. This is my third, third crack at it. <laughs> so, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. What um, are you kind of constantly uh, like taking images of it through time, or what's the- well, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. It's it's something that we keep revisiting. It's it's. Um, in a way, the structure of it has a lot of important ideas that I like to continually work with and I'm sort of obsessed with. It has um, rhythmic elements that come f- from India um, in the form of these cadential sort of formula that serve as cues. Uh, the, it's also very expansive as a, as a sonic space, you know, that reminds me and is reminiscent of uh, some of Coltrane's work. You know, it has that sort of vastness to it which i i mean or at least tries to <laughs> it reaches for that kind of thing and it's and it also has some the, you know if, in the details of how the rhythmic structures put together it's dealing with these fibonacci numbers which have pervaded my work since 1995 and so that's uh so it contains all these elements that are very important to me or just interesting to me that and then continuing to but it's also very open in the uh, structure of it, so it, it's something that you can just always reach into and experiment with, and so I, you know, I, it's just it it keeps uh, surprising us, I think, because it's it's put together with a minimum of ingredients, but it it keeps giving back. You know, every time we play it, it's sort of like we surprise ourselves. So uh, that's sort of uh, because it distills that that. Uh, process of improvisation and dialogue and, and it gives us that chance to sort of uh, rediscover uh, elements of who we are you know that that to me is the most rewarding process
if you were to listen uh, to the versions that you've recorded over the years, is it is it kind of like watching a, a home movie or something? Can you see what <laughs> what was happening in your life at that moment? And what yeah, was yeah, the I can. Because it was. I remember, you know, actually one of the first times that I performed it was in duo with Rudresh, and we still do that quite often with Rudresh Mahathapa, the alto saxophonist who. I've worked with for a very long time. Um, it was on our first gig together back in 96 that we performed it live. I had just started playing it with my trio in California at the time, but I don't think we had performed it yet, and so that first chance to perform it was with Rudresh. And, uh, you know, it, it. so I do remember, especially when we do it as a duo, it takes me back to that first moment. Um, and then also doing it as a trio now, I remember... I sort of remember what it was like, but I, the, when I listen to the first version, there's a fragility to it that I find kind of charming in the same way that if you look at your old, your high school photo or something like that, you think, wow, yeah, what, did, I really, you know, did I really wear that shirt that day? <laughs> that kind of, um, uh, but, you know, I can hear myself sort of reaching. Uh, I mean, one thing that composition is really... The way that composition has functioned for me over the years is as a uh, stimulus for me to reach into, at some level, into the unknown, actually. So to, you know, using uh, formal elements to put together a musical situation that forces me as a player or improviser to kind of stretch beyond what I'm used to doing. And that sort of has stimulated growth over the years for me, you know, um, I hope, or at least I try, you know. Uh. Does, does that, is an example of that, like, for example, using the Fibonacci numbers to to kind of force a rhythm that you then have to work yeah. within? Or? Although, you know, what I find with, I mean, part of the reason that I'm kind of fixated on them is that even though they seem artificial, they actually feel natural. We should definitely tell people what the heck we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. That would be really useful at this point. Well, it's a, I mean, there's a Fibonacci series, which is just uh, a series of whole numbers that starts with one, and then the second number in the series is also one. And then after that, each number in the series is the sum of the previous two. So then you have two, and then you have one plus two is three, and then two plus three is five, and three plus five is eight. Five plus eight is thirteen, and then twenty-one, and thirty-four, and fifty-five, eighty-nine, and one forty-four, so on. So now that's just a, a series. One property that they have, uh, that these numbers have, is that the ratio of any two successive ones um, approximates this irrational number called the golden mean, which is one point six one eight something. It's it's 1 plus the square root of 5 divided by 2, if you must know, <laughs> which is basically the solution to a quadratic equation. Uh, now, what the, the, thing, the fact is that this uh, ratio appears in nature quite a lot. Um, it's, it's associated with growth, like if you count numbers of uh, petals on a sunflower or, or if you measure the spiral, the growth of it, the way that a snail shell grows and things like this, it's... It's kind of just a, uh, this is one of these numbers that happens everywhere. And if you were a conspiracy theorist, you'd, you know, you'd find some kind of, uh, validation in this. But, uh, for me, it's just that it's, it's, it's a certain kind of asymmetry that is, is somehow balanced. And you find it actually in a lot of rhythmic structures in, and particularly in African and African American music, I mean, uh, actually another piece that's on this album that has that is built around this fact is uh, our version of Mystic Brew, which is this, you know, Mystic Brew is this old soul classic from the '70s that was then sampled by Tribe Called Quest on Electric Relaxation. So a lot of people know it as that. <clears throat> you know, when I hear that. The harmonic rhythm of it is three plus five. If you th you know, which is to say it's it's hits on the downbeat and then it hits before the next uh, strong beat, basically. So uh, that kind of asymmetry is the exact is exactly this kind of asymmetry that I'm talking about. Actually, I mean that three plus five. Those are three and five are two Fibonacci numbers. 
So, so one thing that we do with our version of Mystic Brew is we kind of push it through higher versions of that same proportion. So then it, from 3 plus 5, it goes to 5 plus 8, and it goes to 8 plus 13. And so you, and then it all, but the thing is, I mean, when I talk about it, it sounds kind of ridiculous or like a high, overly, uh, people love to say about music that something is overly intellectual. Uh, which I think is kind of unfair because the fact is that music is something that you feel and feeling is not the opposite of thought. Uh, we think with our bodies as much as we do with our minds. I mean, there's organization in the way that we use our bodies. I mean, when you look at great athletes, for example, there's a lot of precision and a lot of detail and a lot of organization in what they're doing. So when we move to music, for example, there's a lot of detail and organization in that as well. So when you look at just the details of how rhythms are put together, you're, you're just sort of measuring something that already exists, that we already do. So it's not... Uh, anyway, that, that, all that is to say that it's okay to analyze, basically. It's okay to use the fruits of analysis to construct new possibilities or, or to construct new kinds of... Uh, musical landscapes. So uh, this is what we're trying to do. But what's, what I find striking about the ver that version of Mystic Brew is that it always feels like some version of 4-4, <laughs> or for, you know, what people would call 4-4, even though it gets pushed through these really elaborate rhythmic transformations that are not even... They're not, I wouldn't call them rhythmic or metric modulations in the sense that we're multiplying everything by some fraction because it's actually a little bit, <clears throat> uh, it's not symmetric the way that the transformation works. So, so it, we actually multiply the short side by one number and the long side by another number, you could say, if you were to look at, number, look at it numerically. Um, but the thing is that what's preserved is the feeling of that proportion. And so that feeling, the, the momentum of it just continues as the uh, inner workings of it transform. And I find that really interesting. So this is sort of like a musical exploration of this simple fact about number, which results in a feeling more than a... Uh, more than a... I mean, it's not... It, the mathematical result is a feeling, basically, is the, is, the, is the preservation of one feeling through the entire piece, which I think is interesting. So a quick production note, uh, if you're just listening to this, you've had the, the somewhat mind-bending experience of the <laughs> oral landscape around us changing completely in no time at all, and that is because uh, we have paused the interview to move outside, figuring that the adorable children in their bubbles can't possibly be worse than uh, the incredibly loud sound inside the lobby. So we've now moved outside, and uh, it, it's, it's quite lovely uh, out here in the, in the courtyard, and I can kind of actually hear what Vijay is saying, which is Good. nice too. So, um, is it necessary uh, for people who hear this music to have any level of understanding at all about what you've just described? Well, or is I, it just beneficial? Is it helpful? Is it an extra layer? I don't even know if it's helpful, actually. <laughs> I think uh, I, I don't expect anybody to. In fact, I know for a fact that most people. Even those who do like our music have no idea about any of that. Um, you know, often I will get pegged as like, oh, well, he's the guy who 
who's uh, does math jazz or something. <laughs> uh, math jazz. Yeah. Um, but that's obviously not all that I do. And uh, there's a, you know, to me, the emotional content of the music and the sort of symbolic content and the resonance that it has is much deeper than the structure that these like uh, arithmetic structures you know it, it's uh it's about um well you know the way that we listen to music uh, especially these days since we have access to such an abundance of recorded music is uh is associative you know we hear things in terms of other things we hear we hear similarities and you know we get reminded of other musical experiences um so it's this sort of chain of associations but then there's also uh simply the 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 sheer uh power that music has to access our emotions you know and to kind of reach into our bodies and manipulate that aspect of things or or to uh I was just reading about something about uh, mirror neurons, which, you know, is this, like, aspect of our neural systems that have uh, evolved, that we've evolved, basically, to empathize with each other. (laughs) And uh, someone's developing this theory of uh, music perception and cognition that has to do with motor neurons as a kind of basis for the reason we have music because really for the last lately scientists have been thinking about why why we should have music at all i mean it doesn't it's hard for them to scientifically arrive at any understanding of its evolutionary usefulness for example or biological um significance and part of that is because they're not able to think about uh, they're, they're not very good at theorizing about groups of people. I mean, they, there's a lot of knowledge about the bo- one person's body and the inner workings of it, and uh, and then we have these sort of mythic ideas about um, how you know humans before language foraged for food in the jungle and stuff like this. But there's no real understanding of what music does to bring people together, and 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 what it does as an interpersonal act, you know. And so this this uh, new idea about mirror neurons being kind of the basis of it, I think is really powerful because it sort of shows us that it's not just about the sound, but it's what the sound reminds us of in our bodies. In other words, when you hear, basically when you hear human action in music, it reminds you of how you are able to act as well. It, it sort of becomes this, your body becomes this sort of, resonating chamber for another musician's actions so I think that's a really interesting view of things and it it kind of points to how how much music is about empathy and about and and not just at some sort of abstract level but really at the level of uh, action like at the level of it's really at the base of our brains (laughs) you know that this is sort of happening so uh, connecting us to how we move our bodies and stuff like that. So I think that's an interesting possible truth about music, is that it really is, it's how, it, in, in a way that it possibly precedes language in the way that we communicate with each other and harmonize with each other and relate to each other. Um, how did I get on this from your question? What was your question? Well, I'm gonna. I want to keep going though along the path that you're on. Which is a, me- a minute ago you mentioned the associative uh, nature of listening to music, and so there's there are tracks on on this record somewhere from West Side Story, uh, Big Brother by Stevie Wonder that have kind of lyrical and narrative weight mm-hmm. attached to them. If you're familiar with the tunes, if you're not familiar with them, they don't have anything attached to them. Yeah, which I find really interesting. You know that you can. Uh that so much of the the significance of the music has to do with something so culturally specific as as where and where where and when you are you know that's that's something that i really wanted to play with with this project in particular i wanted to ask you about the kind of intentionality of the choices like beyond the fact that big brother is a really great tune <laughs> it, i mean it it has a it it makes a an overt political statement in its lyrics yeah. um somewhere might make a very different kind of 
political statement, depending on who and, and when you are, I guess. Um, and so I wanted to ask whether you chose some of those songs with some of that in mind, more than more than just in the back of your mind, but as a as a reason for choosing those. Particular yes, songs. very much. I mean, uh, I think somewhere is the exception on the album in terms of. I mean, it's something that we covered more. I had more in mind the way that a cover can transform a piece of music rather than pay homage to it, you know, and for, you know, the towering example being my favorite things, of course, you know, like when you hear that, you don't think, oh, Coltrane must really be thinking about whiskers on kittens right now. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not, that doesn't enter your mind ever. Uh, and in fact, he, I said that, I was saying this to somebody else, but when I hear that song, when I hear Coltrane's, you know, there are multiple recorded versions, live and otherwise, uh, to me, his version so exceeds the original. I mean, it towers over it, it and it and it contains so much that the original does not contain. That uh, the original just becomes this uh, uh, a stimulus for something else that's c entirely different from that. So, uh, but then that creates this interesting tension, you know, because sure, everybody knows that song and. I guess the Julie Andrews film version came after his version. His version. <laughs> but uh, certainly, you know, you associate it with cherubic little Austrian kids and, and a governess and these things that, that, that most of us never experienced as part of our lives. So, you know, it's possible to do a cover and really, I don't know, almost create this dialogue with the original that is... I don't want to say insignificant, but sort of beside the point. <laughs> or it could say you could say that maybe Coltrane was saying these are some of my favorite things, and they're not your favorite things. You know, uh, that's possible. And it could be also that when I did somewhere, or when we as a trio did somewhere, it was our idea of that somewhere is somewhere else from that Broadway show's idea of somewhere. <laughs> that, meaning there's a place for us. That kind of that whole longing for, um, well, you know that 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 West Side Story is this kind of naive '50s consideration of race and immigration politics in New York City. So uh, that's a kind of you know, and then this somewhere song becomes this like oh, I don't want to unpack it too much. But, um, you know, it's the, it's the love song between the two principals who are from these warring factions. You know, it's sort of about imagining a place for reconciliation or a place for peace and harmony and that kind of thing. But it's also, you know, our version of this song is really intentionally kind of transforming its materials and, and uh, trying to expand them and, and turn them into something that they aren't, you know. Getting back to your question, uh, these other covers, I'd say all the other covers on the album are uh, really, for me, the originals are so inspiring and the artists who created them were so inspiring to me and they're very important cultural figures for me, you know, and, and the content of these works, in some way, each of them has this kind of uh, insurgent or disruptive quality that I find really inspiring and, and you know, so Big Brother, for example, it is a very political song. It's uh, kind of damning, really, you know, when you look at who he's addressing and how he's addressing them. And yet it also is this, it's got this deep irony in it, because the song, if you didn't listen to the lyrics, the song has this kind of joy to it, or this, uh, ex uh, well, there's a, 
Yeah, basically, it's the blues because it, it contains this contradiction, and it, structurally, it's also kind of a blues. Um, but it, you know, it contains this inherent tragicomic kind of connotation this, that uh, you know, here's this. You, you hear, you know, in the original, you hear this very lyrical harmonica that kind of pervades the entire song and interacts with the vocal and and uh, and there's a there, the, just the way it's orchestrated even though it's 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 very stark you don't hear like snare drum and hi-hat and the sort of typical rhythm section kind of thing it uh, it still has the kind of uh, uplifting quality to it so uh, we wanted to try to as a trio to capture that but when you cut out the lyrics you're missing that kind of crucial ingredient so we had to find a way to sort of ratchet up the darkness of it because <laughs> it'd be easy if you just do an instrumental version of that song to make it feel like a, a happy jam kind of thing right. and that's not what it is so so I found that we had to kind of reach in the direction of say money jungle or the sound of that kind of thing which is uh, very, uh, very a lot starker um, and you know transpose everything into a very low register and this kind of thing so uh, so I was very interested in somehow re or somehow capturing and reactivating the content of the song without singing it <laughs> <laughs> And if you heard me sing, you would know why. buy into the, the philosophical approach to music that you have in order to make the music um, Do I have a phys- philosophical approach to music? I don't music? know if you do, yeah. <laughs> How much do they need to buy into anything you've so far said in order to make the music work? Well, look, I mean, we get along very well as people, and we share a lot of concerns and interests, be they cultural, musical, social, political. I mean, that. I think it's a part of just how we get along and how we interact uh it's not that it's a precondition for working with me or anything like that it's more that it's an understanding that i think we all have um partly from years of working together and how we've influenced each other in terms of the uh the stuff about mirror neurons or fibonacci numbers i don't know if those guys could care less about that stuff (laughs) but they do handle the structures very you know very well and very they take it very seriously you know they're not uh they're not like oh here's another one of vijay Iyer's rhythmic conundrums as they've been called <laughs> they really think like oh well let's, let's figure out okay here's this interesting uh, challenge let's figure out how to make it feel good you know and and so we're all sort of in it together at that level will you talk about andrew hill and and why you've chosen uh smokestack on this uh... well andrew hill is a good friend of mine and a very important influence musically and uh you know he took i started pestering him in the mid 90s when he'd come out to yoshi's or whatever to when i was living in oakland and i'd become obsessed with his music and smokestack was I, i guess the first album i heard of his was point of departure and probably the second one i heard was smokestack and particularly the title 
cut from that album, Smokestack, is so, uh, it's sort of terrifying to hear. <laughs> when you first hear how it begins, it's, it's sort of, it just seems that impossible. It, it, its existence seems impossible. You can't believe that it's happening, you know? It's, uh, this, this insane vortex of sound that uh, just, uh, how much of it is by design and how much of it is spontaneous it's hard to say but it's like it's just it's incredible and it's the people playing it are some of the greatest musicians ever <laughs> so uh and you know when i first heard it i i couldn't really even discern the form of it because it just seemed to sort of double back on itself and i was really um it just had this it, this vastness and this mystery that i really wanted to get close to and, and understand not, not even necessarily understand i just wanted to experience it over and over you know and it so happens also that the drummer on this on that album is the grandfather of the drummer on our album <laughs> uh namely roy haynes is the grandfather of marcus gilmore and um so between the kind of i guess it's fair to say fatherly relationship that i had with andrew hill that he, Andrew Hill, I mean, Andrew was a kind of, uh, he was a sort of mentor figure for me, you know, and he also looked out for me career-wise, too, and he told he told a lot of people about me early on when I first came to New York, and, and uh, I found when I went to his memorial service that his whole family knew me, even though, like, all, all these people in his family and his close friends, even people who weren't close to music, knew something about me, even though I'd never met a lot of them, so... Uh, so that was really touching for me to, that um, to see that I meant something to him as well. <laughs> but uh, but really, I mean, he's a towering influence for me as a pianist, as a composer, and as a, just in terms of um, sound. Just thinking about the sound of the instrument and uh, rhythmic complexity. Or I wouldn't even say complexity, but um, uh, he has this. He's a he was a rhythmic virtuoso, you know. I mean, a lot of people think here what he does is rhythmically out, or something. But to me, it's really like he reached so deep in to rhythmic possibility that uh, he came up with something that no one had really thought of before or found before. So it's a, just he, he discovered something about rhythm that's that was really uh, profound i think so you know i want uh, i guess i've always liked his music and about a year ago i had a student who transcribed that song just the the head of it and i realized it sort of like brought me back into contact with how amazing it is <laughs> and so i wanted to do it so then we actually ended up it wasn't that we were trying to touch the original necessarily um but we ended up kind of crossing it with this rhythmic structure of mind that was actually on our previous album, Tragic Comic. There's a piece on there called Machine Days, which has this interesting kind of lopsided rhythm of its own. So that underpinning became the underpinning of this. Sometimes I call it, it's smoke smokestack over Machine Days, and so sometimes I call it Smoke Machine, which is a little different. And it also becomes a nice feature for Marcus, which I think is... Really, so that's part of what drives it home for me. talk in a little more detail about your bandmates on this recording yeah well so marcus uh marcus gilmore is a, the drummer uh he started working with me when he was 16 which is really humbling <laughs> i mean i guess i'm 
15 years older than he is and uh and I always learn something from him I mean it's just not fair <laughs> but one thing that that's really inspiring about him is that uh you know for a lot of musicians who are descended from other great musicians that becomes a major issue somehow um in terms of uh defining oneself or finding one's own identity or that kind of thing and that he somehow just never had that i mean <laughs> he's just so he's so at peace with who and what he is and uh and the gifts that he has and the work that he's done that it's never you never feel like he's trying to prove anything when he sits behind the drums he he doesn't have to tell you anything you know <laughs> And so then every every choice he makes is in service to something a, a larger you know a larger goal a larger aesthetic and um a larger narrative you know it's not about listen to me I'm playing drums and I'm a badass it's it's uh it's listen to this sound listen to this music you know listen to this counterpoint and listen listen you know it's really just this deep listening that he you know that he's blessed with that uh, I learn a lot from that and the fact that he can play anything he wants <laughs> he can play anybody's music and be among the best in the world at doing it it's really stunning so that's really inspiring to be around he, you know so that's he he started working with me in the 2003 yeah so that's six six years yeah that makes sense he's 22 now people ask me often if he sounds like Roy Haynes to me I mean and Roy Haynes is one of the great obviously one of the greatest drummers of all time easily the greatest living drummer and also Roy Haynes did a lot of different kinds of things you know I mean recently earlier this year they had this this astounding two week stretch on WKCR did you hear about this when they played did, yeah. they played Roy records that Roy Haynes was on for over two weeks straight without a break I mean and they didn't repeat and that was only the tip of the iceberg actually because they couldn't possibly play 900 hours of rain <laughs> so they stopped at 400 or something like that and you you realize in the course of that, that this guy did everything with everybody and made everybody's music better because of it you know it didn't even it i mean it mattered who he was playing with but it didn't it was really like he could bring his sound into any context and expand that I think he was a pioneer in a lot of ways that he you know he was able to play with he was able to cross these kinds of fictional boundaries that people set up between little micro genres and it didn't matter to him you know and, it, and I think Marcus is the same way in that sense that he can really he uh encompasses all of that and I think also that um in the detail of it, when you listen to Roy Haynes play time, it's not like you necessarily hear this straight time on the ride cymbal. It's really like the time is emanating from the center of him. <laughs> and everything else is manifest it manifests in the sounds that he makes. But you don't you can't I mean this is something that Braxton said about him apparently is that it's not a uh, it's it's sort of well, I think the term he used is summation logic just to say that uh, you add it all together and that's where the time is, you know? It's not in one place. So I'd say that Marcus has that too. It's sort of like it's so deeply inside of him that his actions become a manifestation of the time, which is something that we all strive for, I think. And the last thing I'll say about him is that he really cares about sound too. I mean, he's always he always has some different set of symbols that he's been checking out or, you know plays a lot with the sound of the kid and transforms the the sound of the drums through different pieces based on what what they need to what needs to be said or where the emphasis needs to lie and I think he's very conscious of that kind of thing in a way that you know the best uh producers or orchestrators are so he has that kind of sensibility as well so Stefan is someone I've, I've worked with since not long after I moved to New York Stefan Crump is the bass player. Yeah, he's been in my group for 10 years. He was basically... When I came to New York, I had a sort of working quartet. Um, 
with Rudresh and a drummer named Derek Phillips who had moved here at the same time as me from California. And the bassist we had had, this guy Devin Hoff, who's pretty now he's still very active, um, still on the West Coast, but he works with a lot of downtown folks and with Nels Klein and with a lot of people you might have heard of. So, but that it was impractical for him to be in my band. <laughs> like I couldn't fly him out to play. Uh, in the basement of the knitting factory. <laughs> that wasn't going to work. So, and of course, there are plenty of musicians around here to work with in New York. And uh, Stefan was one of the first people I got turned on to. And it was really, you know, he was like one, th- one of the first things I remember is that um, basically I, we, were, we just had this rehearsal to try new music. And we didn't have any kind of, it was nothing but a rehearsal, basically. <laughs> it was just... It wasn't just, it was a, a joint group that I had with uh, Aaron Stewart, this tenor saxophonist. And we were just going to get together and try some stuff with no goal in sight. And he was down for it. I mean, he'd never met me, didn't know anything about me. But he jumped in, and uh, I don't think I can possibly express to you how rare that is in New York City. <laughs> how you know, Basically, the idea of getting together to work on music for his own sake. That is almost an impossibility here. So, you know, that was the first sign that, wow, this guy is actually up for something, you know. I found over the years that he is, I mean, he really cares about, also really cares about sound, really cares about the place of his instrument in the larger context of the music. Um, has a re- You know, as a composer and band leader himself and as a producer... Of recordings, uh, his wife is a singer-songwriter, and he her, he often you know handles the the production on her albums and stuff like that. And uh, so he has that kind of awareness of sound. And as a bassist, you know, a lot of bassists that you find are kind of like frustrated cellists or frustrated guitarists in the sense that they really want to get up in the middle of the music. And that's not what I want from a bass player. I want someone who's who's the bassist, you know, who's the sort of who knows what it means to be the foundation of something and understands the centrality of that role and the, the how crucial it is and he was always like that to me i mean he was always the guy who thought okay this is my area of the music and it's the center you know it's the it's the base it's the, <laughs> it's the foundation so he uh so, I mean, especially because I'm always seen as the complexity guy, I think that his understanding of the music and the and the essence, like really boring into the essence of it, it brings this kind of really important dash of simplicity, basically, or sort of like a, a perspective of um, reducing complexity, you know, rather than adding to it. That is so crucial to making this music work. And, uh, you know, we've been on lots of adventures together. <laughs> and he's not just in my quartet and trio and stuff, but also he was on the first project I did with Mike Ladd called In What Language, which was um, a huge project and took a lot of time and required a lot of patience, you know, and uh, understanding and awareness of the larger picture. So it's rare to find people like that who have that kind of... Uh, combination of skill and taste and talent and um, awareness you know I think also Stefan is someone who has uh, just he doesn't think about jazz as the center of anything you know he's like jazz is one of many things that he's concerned with but we'll spend a lot of time just listening to um, R&B and funk from the 70s and you know our dri- you know, our drives when we go on the road, and he often is driving. With the listening palette, the stuff that we're listening to in the car, is really revealing in that sense. It's sort of like the the breadth of stuff that he's into, you know, and particularly how it's so rarely about bassists being in the front of things or in the middle of things, or you know, it's really just about. He cares about feel and about groove and about sound and about music. So I think that makes it a really nice combination with these guys that we all... It's like I said earlier, we all have these concerns in common 
and we all bring something special to the table, I hope, you know. My, uh, my final question for you, actually, before I say that, I'm going to encourage anyone listening to us to uh, immediately grab In What Language, which I think is brilliant. I really, really loved it. Um, but my final question is, we, we spent a lot of time today talking about uh, rhythm and kind of rhythmic complexity. And I often feel, uh, just me personally, kind of like ill-equipped sometimes to figure out in a rhythmically complex piece of music what's going on. And I think I'm probably not alone in that. And so I guess I'm gonna I'm just asking you um, for some ideas about how to approach uh, listening to music that has a lot going on rhythmically that maybe I don't have the education or background to to grab, or whether that's even necessary. Well, again, I mean, I would hope that expertise is not something you need to bring to the experience of music. I mean, it's true in any case that we get what we get. And it's also true that understanding is a uh, an illusion. I mean, especially when we talk about understanding music. I mean, I don't understand music. You know, not at all, really. <laughs> I make music and I try to understand even what I've made, and I often don't. Uh, and it works in ways that I can't account for. Not just my, not my music only, but, it, you know, music in general... I mean, I can spend the rest of my life trying to understand why music does what it does, and I, know, I don't think I ever will. I don't, I don't know that understanding is really the point. I really don't think it is. I don't think that that's what we want from art. If we understood each other, <laughs> we wouldn't need art. <laughs> I didn't make that up, but I think it's a really funny basic truth about us. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's sort of like experience of music is is what works instead of understanding. I think it's sort of a, um, it goes back to that sense of empathy. I think that I think really, and one of the reasons that it's often said that you don't really understand jazz or whatever until you've seen it performed is that maybe it's hard to to know what the stakes are, what the parameters of expression are, and that kind of thing if you don't see it in action because it's so much about process you know and this is this music is about process it's about the it's about acts of creation in the moment as much as it is about honoring compositional forms and stuff like that so i think that uh the communicative aspect of it in the sense of uh dialogue among the musicians and the fact that that's uh, a real-time process that's something you appreciate more when you see it live and I'm I'm not even touching on the the question you asked, which is about how how do you as a listener deal with rhythmic so-called complexity or whatever. Um, um, to me, I mean, what what we hear is we hear regularity in music and we hear irregularity in music. Or what what I mean to say is we hear what's varying against what's not varying. In other words, we hear periodicities, like we hear things that are repeated. And then we hear things that change against that. So rhythmic cycles, I mean, my stuff is actually, I mean, even though it may be uh, in the West, some of these rhythmic cycles that we deal with are unfamiliar, they're still cyclical in the sense that they come back around and then you hear that sameness. <laughs> and then you hear also that we're dealing with that 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 cyclicality but we're also playing with it and playing across it and playing through it and against it so i think you can hear that no matter what it is um if you just sort of zone in on that fact of things and uh, you know i think any any area of music takes a certain patience if you really want to uh if you want to come to terms with it but also any area of music has a certain just immediate quality to it in the sense that it immediately grabs you in a certain way. You know, it, there's like there's a certain f flavor it has, a certain rhythmic character that it has that's the first thing you notice about it, you know, whether or not you know how or how it's happening or what is happening, you still notice some basic quality to it. I, mean, I think the thing about piano trios, piano trios are hard. You know, I did this blindfold test for Downbeat a couple of years ago that they finally ran earlier this year. 
and all he played me was piano music that had been record that had been released that year. So, <laughs> so I, I heard like piano trio after piano trio, and I was thinking, man, no wonder people hate jazz. <laughs> it all sounds the same, you know. So I don't know if you don't if you really like. For me, I was able to discern who was who a lot of the time because I'm a professional in this area of music, whatever. But I could see that if I weren't who I was, it all would have just been one big wash to me. So, I mean, part of what I try to do with this music is um, think about the whole sound of things and, and the orchestration of it and really take nothing for granted in terms of how the basics of the music are articulated and who's who's doing what the division of labor i guess that kind of thing you know i i try to with the orchestration of it and with the uh the the attention to that level of sonic detail i hope that different moments of the music distinguish themselves in that sense but in a way you know this this stuff about rhythm and complexity it's just sort of a for us it's a stimulus to do something that we haven't done before. That's all it is. It's not about displaying mastery of some kind of thing that you can't do. Or something like that. In a way, I'd like it to sound like something that anybody could do. You know, that level of it. I, I think that I'm trying to make it sound nat as natural as possible, so it's not even a question, really. My guest is Vijay Iyer, and the new album is called Historicity, and uh, it's just been a, an absolute pleasure spending time with you. I thank you for doing it. Well, thanks, man. It's a pleasure to be here. That's Vijay Iyer from his album, Historicity. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. This show has an email mailing list, which you'll find if you go to thejazzsession.com. And if you are on Facebook, there's a Facebook group for the show, too. You just go up in the little search box and type in The Jazz Session, and there you are. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to them and also to Dave Rabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. Thanks so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.